Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a very special episode of the podcast focusing specifically on the COVID pandemic and professional sports. It's certainly been a whirlwind of the last few months as we've seen disruptions to seasons, as we've seen seasons go into bubbles. The NHL season's come to an end. The NBA season is winding down. MLB's in the playoffs, and the NFL and MLS are certainly in the thick of things. We're joined today by several renowned professional head team physicians who've been right in the middle of everything with respect to their teams. First, we have Dr. Eric McCarty from the University of Colorado in Boulder, the head team physician for the Colorado Avalanche. Dr. McCarty, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Pete and Rachel. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you guys. Next, we have Dr. Tom Noonan from the Stebbin Hawkins Clinic in Denver, Colorado, and the head team physician for the Colorado Rockies. Dr. Noonan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pete, and thanks, Rachel. Um, really appreciate having me on for this. Well, thank you, guys. Let's get right into it. We'd like to ask each of you, and we'll have you go um, kind of one at a time. What are the COVID-19 testing procedures and policies on each of your respective professional teams, knowing that you guys also take care of high school and collegiate athletes, but for your pro teams, the Avalanche and the Rockies, how often are the athletes and staff getting tested? How are they getting tested? Is it with saliva? Is it with PCR testing? And how quickly are you getting the results? Um, Emac, let's start with you. What what was the protocol for the Avalanche? Well, you know, it's really interesting because uh, we went through a couple phases of of returning to the sport, and this began all the way back in in June. And and first, it was just returning to the practice rink and getting guys in it. It was the NHL did a great job with consultation with infectious disease physicians you know, uh, basically in Canada and the United States. And really it was a, a very well-regulated uh, um, uh, thing that they did. They, they had the athletes get tested uh, uh, daily and the athletes, uh, you know, everybody was checked. It was a very secure uh, place. They could only have about six guys uh, at a time and they couldn't all be together in a weight room, but they could be on the ice. And so that's when it started. And then they did a tremendous job in the bubble up in Canada, in Toronto and Edmonton. So what that entailed was uh, testing daily. And basically this bubble, they could not, uh, they could not go out of this secure area, basically from the hotel to the rink. And uh, they did have some excursions where they were taken on a bus to someplace and, and they could just get out of this bubble. But the NHL did not have any positive tests during the time in the bubble, which is really impressive. So, so, so daily tests, uh, they had time when they could, when they could uh, get out and, and do some things within the bubble, but it was very secure. And, and one last thing I want to mention too, it was if I, as a team physician, went up to the bubble, I would have to be in quarantine in my hotel room for four days and get tested every day. And once I was negative, then I could come out of my hotel room and then be a part of the uh, of, of what was going on. But even then, 
I wouldn't be in the locker room. I would just be in the stands and just see each individual player if somebody needed to be seen. So really a great example of how the bubble can work. Totally. And it's really impressive that there were no positives in, in that bubble as we're starting to see with um, with really all other sports, you know, some positives here and there. And we can see the ripple effect that those have. Tom, what about you? What's the protocol been for the Rockies? Um, how often are the athletes getting tested, the training staff, coaching staff, medical staff, et cetera? And what type of test is it? And how quickly do you get your results? Is it same day? Is it next day? What, what are the protocols here? Yeah. And so I would uh, echo what Eric said and that MLB really did an incredible job also, you know, dealing with um, a lot of different uh, docs and uh, societies and so forth. And I mean, we have like a 130 page medical manual. And, and I think the MLB job is even harder because even though the playoff teams now are in a bubble, our entire regular season was, you know, no bubble. And, and we had teams traveling all over the United States and, and thankfully, um, very few issues. Um, so baseball effectively divided um, personnel and players and everything into different tiers. Uh, tier one, which would include all the players, athletic trainers, physicians, and so forth, uh, all got tested every other day. And that was a saliva antigen test. Um, there was, and, and what they also wanted to do was not disrupt any ability of the, the general public to um, not have uh, access to tests. And so they contracted with a lab actually out in Utah that does the uh, testing for baseball's uh, drug tests. And they were doing all these saliva tests. So these tests were getting done and then FedExed uh, to Utah. And I think this company also had a site in, in New York. So they were being FedExed overnight. And once they received it, I believe they had like a six hour um, turnaround. So you, if you got tested one day, you generally find out the, the day after. Uh, and if there was a positive test, they would follow that up with a um, PCR with the, the deep uh, nasopharyngeal uh, swab. So that was the, the protocol that we followed. And tell us a little bit, if, if the PCR comes back positive, what was your return to play protocol for athletes who tested positive? Uh, I guess Eric, you didn't have any, so you don't need to. You don't probably even have an answer, right? <laughs> hey, Tom. No. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to, hard to answer when uh, when we didn't have any. So I'll, I'll let you uh, tackle that one, Tom. Yeah. So so the first thing they did it was immediately you know contact tracing, and so anybody that had any meaningful contact with that player was was quarantined uh, at that point. And, and the people quarantined at that point it converted to everyday uh, testing. Uh, and then in terms of uh, return to play, uh, obviously the player had to be asymptomatic and then they had to have two uh, negative tests. We did also run through the scenario. I don't think it ever happened, but uh, as you all are aware, there are some people that become entirely asymptomatic but continue to test positive um, for weeks, sometimes even months. And so we, we did have the hypothetical situation that if that were to occur, that player could be returned back to play with a positive test as long as uh, they were entirely asymptomatic. I think, I think it was for like two weeks and um, you know, you know, you were, so you were able to circumvent that because that is a, is a possibility. Now, when we talk about not just, you know, athletes, but staff members, but really anyone in the organization, if anyone does test positive, 
you know, and again, this is probably going to apply more to Tom than, than to EMAC, but what's the process for shutting things down for isolation? You know, um, once you, you, you read the headlines, especially right now in the NFL and, and a player test positive and the whole facility is shut down. Um, we've had some experience with that in the MLS. What's been the protocol in the MLB um, for that right now, Tom? Uh, you know, thankfully, thankfully, we we never, we, in fact, we never had a positive test on the Rockies in the season. So the, I think the two examples in Major League Baseball, one was the Marlins, uh, one was the Cardinals. Um, if there was a positive test, they would cancel the game, I, usually for the like the next two days. Um, obviously be testing everything else. If it was isolated, um, they could quarantine the people that had direct contact and then resume play fairly quickly. Now in both the Marlins and the Cardinals, you know, they had um, multiple people test positive. And so each of those teams were shut down, uh, I believe for about a week. But I think those were the only two uh, times there was a long time shutdown. I know San Francisco had a positive that ended up being a, a false positive, and so they only missed, I think, a, a game. Um, but it, it was, I think it was kind of similar to, to NFL and MLS. If it's like a single positive, um, you know, not a, a huge deal, but if you had multiple people, then they start um, canceling games and shutting down facilities. And um, tell us a little bit, do you, have you had a restriction on the number of healthcare providers at practices or at games? Have there been restrictions on, are you practicing some social distancing that's affected your ability to care for these athletes? So uh, baseball, it was, it was hard because there was a limited number of these tier one uh, spots. And um, so we were, you know, normally I, I, we cover the team with about, six of us uh, rotating coverage and we have different specialties and so forth. But because of the limitations, we, we were only allowed to have two uh, physicians that could cover all the games. Um, we, we pretty much wore N95 masks uh, when present in the training room. Um, there, there, you know, there wasn't really any specific rule about don't get close to a player, but you know, there's certainly encouragement to not uh, congregate and to, and to keep your six feet away from uh, folks, but it was it was a little challenging because we had to deal with a, a much pared down uh, medical staff. And uh, Eric, tell us a little bit about how this has affected you, especially also with um, CU football. I mean, are you guys changing the way you're covering CU football with fellows um, being present, not being able to present? Tell us how that's affecting both your educational mission and then also your ability to cover for you know these Pac-12 athletes that, at least in Utah, are basically professional athletes. Yeah, I, I, it, it's very interesting. You know, the the hockey was uh, was just uh, you know completely, you know, away from our institution, and so completely different than what we will see when when the University of Colorado starts football up at the beginning of November. And so, you know, the hockey are, they are now in their off season, and they still have have rules. Uh, you know, regarding if they're doing any training, but it is their off season. So it'll be interesting to see when they come back to the season, which is supposed to begin at the beginning of January, what it's going to look like. I think we don't even know if they're going to try to do mini bubbles. You don't have, you know, various uh, isolated cities across the United States uh, and Canada 
where they may go and play a series of games in a mini bubble. Um, I can't imagine they're going to be doing a lot of traveling back, back and forth between all the cities like they normally do. So that's NHL. And looking at, at University of Colorado, we just found out, you know, within the past two weeks that we were going to have a season. And so that has been very interesting because uh, as of, uh, you know, the beginning of September, we were not. And so now we're, we're getting ready for the season and the guys are getting tested. They all got tested yesterday. We are actually going into a kind of a mini bubble at the University of Colorado, meaning what is going on is that uh, in agreement with the Boulder County Health Department, that the team will be staying in the same hotel and they can only uh, go between the hotel and the practice field. Um, if there's anything else with class and things like that, of course they can go, but they have to be very strict with the mask. Uh, they, they of course can't go out to any social gatherings. And, uh, so the testing is, is, uh, very complete. We have a new test, uh, that is a fairly rapid test that the, the guys are doing it. And that's what the PAC 12 has adopted. So in regards to that, that's going to be very interesting to see how that goes and, and how we uh, handle things once we go on the road. Um, I think uh, you will probably be tested before we get on the bus, go to the plane, get on the plane, you get to the city, you go to the hotel, you do not go out of the hotel. You then go to the game and everybody stays uh, basically within everything once they're tested. Uh, from what I understand, the athletes will be tested the day of the game as well. So what that means for uh, our fellows and, and educationally is, is unknown right now. Uh, we don't know how this is going to play out. You know, the, the games themselves, we haven't uh, had that, uh, you know, we still have a month, but we have not uh, decided yet what that is going to mean on the sidelines of the games. And we don't know what that means with even fans in the stadium. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm pushing hard for the uh, fellows to have a part of it. I don't think we'll have as many as we normally do. Uh, which is uh, several on the sidelines, but uh, they are of help and they can be helpful for not only us, but also the other team who travels maybe one or two docks and they can help take a player to x-rays. They can help facilitate things. So uh, just then in that regards alone, I think we will have the opportunity to have some fellows at the football games in an open environment. Um, might be a lot different in a closed environment uh, such as hockey or basketball once that comes around. So, so very interesting, Pete. We'll, we'll see what happens, and hopefully we uh, have this figured out, and hopefully we are playing the University of Utah on December 11th like we're supposed to. Uh, if everything goes well, we will. Hey, Eric, what kind of, uh, what kind of test is Pac-12 using? You know, it's, it's called the – I think the name of the company is Quidel. And, and I am not familiar with the, the various aspects uh, of it, uh, some type of PCR, but it's a, it's a quick test, uh, you know, rapid, meaning, you know, within two hours. I think they could actually do it a little faster, what I understand, um, even 15 minutes. But I am not familiar with all the nuances of it, but it was, uh, it was a game changer once they, uh, once they got that. Uh, that, that basically uh, allowed the Pac-12 to feel more comfortable with uh, testing uh, of the athletes daily and, and being able to, uh, to allow them to play. So you, you know how they test, you know, before they even start practice and, and it gives you test results. So you're not trying to, you know, 
track back a couple of days uh, from when the testing occurred. And so that has been very important and we'll be very interested to see see how that works out. I am not familiar with the accuracy of the test. I understand that it, uh, is well vetted. I think it's uh, from Silicon Valley and uh, we hope that, uh, that, it, that it is as good as they, they say it is. I think we, you know, MLB, each team also did have their own machine which was a rapid test. It, it actually may have been that test, and it was a like a nasal swab only. And for an MLB, it was it was designed for like let's say you show up in the stadium and some guy has symptoms, uh, you could you could test you know right on the spot. Now they would follow it with you know the PCR, but uh, I think MLB used that one for for um, you know again if you needed to know some right away. It's incredible how different approaches and philosophies and protocols are between, you know, colleges, pro teams, even within different teams within the same league, you know, within the MLB or, or um, MLS or NFL, you know, within the bubble, like with the NHL and NBA, obviously everyone's getting tested with the same exact test. And so that's much more consistent, but there is some variability between teams within the same league, which I think, you know, may create um, some difficulties moving forward, but also maybe, okay, just so many unknowns. You know, another question and thought I think that comes up, especially for um, for a lot of the docs that are going to be listening to this podcast and also a lot of fans of sport in general, is the pre, during and post game contact that players have with each other, including at team meals, team meetings, um, even celebrations on the field. You know, you score a touchdown, you 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 all celebrate together um, or in sports like you know, um, uh, basketball, you're right on top of each other. Football, you're right on top of each other during the whole game, essentially. If in theory, all the athletes and staff and personnel in the stadium get tested and are negative, this should be okay. But of course, we've seen that in several instances, this is not okay, or a player or a staff member is um, positive, but just not reactive on the test yet. So as you know, as your team's um, head team's physicians, how do you guys advise um, athletes or advise your team's in terms of contact before, during, and after games, um, any thoughts on team meals? Should those be avoided um, or should those be more socially distanced team meetings and then post-game celebrations? How do you kind of talk about that with your teams? Tom, let's start with you. Any thoughts on that with regard to the Rockies? Yeah. So it's interesting. So MLB um, really carefully spelled out all that stuff. Um, so, you know, for, for example, in terms of when the players can show up. So normally you know, for like a 640 game, a lot of players would come in, you know, 11 or 12 o'clock. I, I think it was like two or three o'clock before they were even allowed in the clubhouse. And then um, there, there, there was no such thing as like a team meal anymore. Uh, all the players and us, for that matter, had an app on our phone. And then you would go on the app, order what you want. And then the kitchen would make like a to-go meal and then and then they uh they would take it to uh a section of the stadium where they could sit spaced apart and uh and eat it and then they really tried to eliminate any content now thankfully for baseball you know it's 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 a pretty good covid friendly sport just because there's so much space and it's generally outside um but they discouraged any sort of contact so no high fives no touching each other they even had a i think i think a three people touch a baseball they got rid of the baseball and got a new one so we were going through like multiples of of what we normally go through in baseballs um but it was very interesting that mlb uh i mean again there's this 130 page manual that spelled out in fact they they even wanted the players to not take a shower like like they they encouraged them to like 
leave the stadium in their uniform, go back to a hotel and shower, which I think most people ignored that, but they, they really made an effort to keep them uh, apart from each other. Emac, you know, in the bubble, I'm sure that athletes all had, you know, the NHL athletes all had their protocols and were instructed on what to do, what not to do. But still, you know, you score a goal, you're going to come up to each other. And obviously they have their helmets on with masks and, or, you know, with their, their mask, their facial protective gear, but they're still in pretty close contact. Any concerns about that, especially as you look forward to kind of next season? And then um, same question applies to CU football. Um, what are you guys going to do about team meals, team meetings, et cetera? So the NHL, you know, they had rules like in, in even in the bubble, they still had to wear a mask when they were not uh, uh, doing anything, when they weren't com- competing. Um, and so, you know, the only time they really didn't wear a mask is if they were doing any kind of uh, uh, weight training, uh, you know, where they they uh, were really exerting themselves. Uh, a simple weight lift and they would. Even in the training room, they had to wear it. Even in the locker room, um, they had to wear it in, until they got on the ice and then they did not have to wear it on the ice. And so, but all everybody else did except for the coaches, which is interesting. Uh, you know, you, you look at the NFL and they, 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 they're getting fined for it. But uh, if you notice NHL coaches, they did not have to uh, in that uh, area, but uh, all the trainers and, and physicians and equipment staff had to. So a lot of rules and, and, you know, obviously a very close physical contact sport, uh, a little bit different than baseball for sure. Uh, I think they were able to get away with the, the, the contact and the closeness of all because of the, the way that they conducted the bubble, you know, for sure. I think if it was a little bit different, it would be more like football. And that's where you see, you know, some of the uh, increases in, in numbers. And not only in pro, but look at uh, college. You know how many games have been canceled or postponed because of somebody, uh, one, two, three, even a dozen players getting COVID, and so uh, a little bit different than uh, than baseball for sure, and a little bit different in college than pro. You know, it's 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 a bit uh, tougher climate to be able to control, and it's going to be very interesting to see in the limited time that the Pac-12 has a season, which is about half the normal games that they normally would, how successful that's going to be. I think they've learned some things from the uh, the watching other teams and leagues go through the September and, and seeing what they do, and, and hopefully we can avoid that. But, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, of course there's some current concern with the, you know, closeness and uh, high fives and all that, but I, I would have to say – at least at the collegiate level, and you've probably seen this, you know, most teams, you know, the guys have a gate around the neck. When they go on the sideline, they're supposed to put it up. Um, and I know we are at the University of Colorado that the uh, only time that gator comes up off the face is when they're actually uh, playing on the field and uh, and conducting themselves. They come on the sidelines, gator goes up. So it'll be very interesting to see how things uh, progress. You know, with this being such an unusual time, um, tell us some of the athlete concerns you've heard. What are what are some of the biggest concerns on the on the player side of the equation in these unusual times? Um, so I think a couple things. One, obviously, athletes were you know most concerned about their families, and and even some of the guys in baseball that had opted out, uh, it wasn't necessarily they were concerned from their own health that they had. 
um, you know, family members that have health issues or parents or whatnot. So, so that was definitely a concern. You know, the other thing I, I, I got to say, it was, it was very um, hard, I think, psychologically on the players too, because it was this, um, you, you know, this environment where their nor normal social interaction was entirely different. And, and, you know, obviously there's our young guys. I mean, they couldn't do anything fun at night uh, on the road literally they were expected to uh sit in their hotel room the entire time uh you know had to go pick up at the go meal eat it in their room so i think this a lot of guys even though it was a very short major league baseball season were were really kind of emotionally exhausted getting through it because it was such a huge uh change in their their normal you know so, social rituals if you will I would I would echo that uh, with the NHL. You know, you think about that even more so. They were away from their families. Um, they went up to the bubbles in Canada um, towards the uh, end of July, uh, third or fourth week of July. And and for the teams that uh, continued to win, you know, if they went to the Stanley Cup, they were there over two months. And this was, out with, was without family. This was in this bubble. This was... Uh, what what an unusual thing for them. I, I think, you know, you, you think about it, uh, you know, some guys, uh, you know, you want to win the Stanley Cup and hockey guys always want to win it. But then there's probably some relief if you're not playing that well and your team's just getting beat in a series that you're just happy to get out of there um, and get home and get out of the bubble. And so it uh, psychologically, it's a huge, a huge issue. Uh, and also, you know, normally the, the NHL playoffs and the Stanley Cup, you know, you're you have uh, the home ice advantage, and that's a big that's a big advantage in hockey for sure. Well, there was none of that this year, and then on top of that, having the psychological aspect of of, of being in this bubble and, and it's kind of like Groundhog Day every day, um, just going your same room, you know, going to the arena and doing the same thing for two months. Uh, it, it certainly took a lot of mental fortitude to get to that point and then to, to finally win it. Yeah. I gotta say it was, uh, you know, Eric, you probably obviously didn't go to, up to Canada to, to see a game, but um, it was a weird atmosphere. I must say on TV, I think it, it comes off pretty good because they add in the, the crowd noise. And it, it, to me, it seems like pretty realistic watching these games on television, but I, I would go up into the stadium and watch some of our games and, um, you know, there would be uh, you know, no fans. I mean, there was a few like officials and whatnot, but there'd be like 10 people in the entire stadium with these guys out um, playing a game. I think for them, it had to be incredibly weird when they're used to playing in front of, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people. You know, in, in hockey, that's such a big deal too, because you feed off the energy of the crowd and piped in music, uh, doesn't doesn't do it and and the same will be uh, true for college football too you know you, you you play at these stadiums and when we play at uh, at usc this year you know that coliseum is going to look empty and you know it's uh it may give us a, a bit of more of an advantage uh at least uh gives a chance to beat the trojans uh, it's going to be a tough go of it as it is but but that's a what a what a different deal for all the players uh, that, that, you know, play the game. Have any of you 
Sorry to interrupt you, but just a good question. You know, these concerns are so unusual um, on the players' side because of these unprecedented times. And this, you know, this is the first season of their career when they've ever truly had a, uh, to deal with this. Have any of them expressed any concern about actually contracting the virus and the health ramifications of having COVID-19? Or has that part been less important for the athletes because most of them are going to be in that, if not all of them, in that healthy category where if they unfortunately contract the virus, hopefully they'll be very minimally symptomatic. But, you know, have have they expressed concern about what happens if I get the virus or has that not really come up? Emac, what about you for the avalanche and for CU football? You know, I, I didn't have any um, specific concerns that, that I heard and, and I've had a lot of interactions with the athletes. And it's interesting, you know, as part of our, our lead in to go back to hockey, you know, starting in May and June, we had numerous Zoom meetings, you know, with the, the players and teams to go over protocol and to go over things. And, and um, you know, I think everybody got it and, you know, they, they want to play hockey. So they were willing to buy by the uh, rules, and 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 uh, I think if they if they abided by these rules, I think they felt very safe. Um, and so, you know, CU football, you know, if you're 18 to 22, those everybody feels like they're invincible anyway. So I I'm not sure that they really quite get it uh, as as like a, a professional athlete does. And you know, baseball has some older guys, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, Dr. Noonan says, but. In terms of the college athletes, I mean, that's why I think you you see so many reports across the country of these parties at uh, fraternities and things happening because college kids think they're invincible and that they have no ramifications, even if they do get the virus. And so I have not heard of any uh, concerns across our team, but I would say this, you know, it's a concern of ours if any of our athletes get it just because of the uh, potential cardiac uh, issues that can occur and and one of our protocols is if a if a kid uh, gets it, and this is true in the NHL too, um, if you get COVID or you're COVID positive, you know basically you're getting a cardiac screening uh, before you can return to play, and that's an absolute necessity. Yeah, I know I think, that. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Please go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, I, in terms of the, the guys I talked to, I, I don't think they were all that worried about themselves, um, you know, getting sick. I think, again, uh, families was a concern for them. And then I think they also realized that, you know, if this goes south and a bunch of people get sick, the, I mean, the, the season could get, I mean, in fact, the first week when we had the Marlins and Cardinals, I mean, you know, they were talking about, should we shut it down? And um, that's, you know, obviously there are guys on huge contracts, but there's a lot of guys that depend on uh, this income. And if if, they, if the season gets canceled, they don't get paid. So I, I think a lot of guys, um, you know, again, weren't so, so worried about themselves personally getting sick, but they wanted to keep the season going. No, I know we talk a lot about professional athletes, but certainly the largest group of athletes is high school athletes. Certainly the problems with these teams are that access to testing isn't as robust. You know, they don't have the same resources. Tell us what your experiences have been caring for high school athletes since the advent of COVID. I'll, I'll be happy to tackle that one. It's uh, very interesting in the, in the Boulder area. There's a school district and 
about two thirds of the schools the, in Colorado, basically they gave the choice to the schools whether to have football in the fall or in the spring. And two thirds of the schools in Boulder Valley are playing this fall and they just are having their first game this weekend. And then a third of them are playing in the spring. And, and some of it had to do with the other teams in their league. And, and of course, if you wanted to play in one season, but the, most of the teams in the league want to play in the other, you kind of had to follow your, your, uh, your league. But uh, what's happened in Colorado is very interesting. We've already seen some games be canceled. Uh, one of the uh, very good uh, football programs in the state, uh, Mullen High School, they recently had to cancel last week because of uh, uh, a player, uh, maybe a couple players uh, testing positive for that. And so in high school, the, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, you may see the uh, COVID and we may not even know that it's happening because many of these kids will be asymptomatic and they're not getting tested. And so you're really probably only getting tested if you have any symptoms at all. And so there may be more of it going on than we know. I think the biggest concern I have with these high school athletes uh, is that uh, the lack of conditioning and the lack of preseason uh, practices that uh, you're going to probably see injuries. Uh, and this is a, I would say, we'll see the COVID related uptick in injuries that is not related to having the virus, but is related to this season of having COVID in the environment and lack of conditioning. So it'll be very interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Eric. Um, because uh, I don't know what, what the NHL experience was, and I've not seen statistics about MLB, but I think a lot of our impressions is that we had more injuries this year, um, which doesn't surprise me because baseball is just such an orchestrated uh, preseason, such a rhythmic preseason where they go through the same uh, routine every year. And, and then this year, you know, we had, you know, three weeks of spring training and they got shut down and then they're at home and they didn't even know if they had a season because the, there was negotiations between the players and the owners and, and of course health concerns. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, a deal gets struck and it's like, you got three weeks of spring training. They, they don't play any other team. So they're just doing scrimmages. And then they, and then all of a sudden they're playing um, games account against other teams. And just that, that abrupt increase in intensity. I think we saw a lot, uh, more injuries uh, this year in baseball, and it seems like we've kind of seen the same in the, in the NFL. So I, I think that's a very valid point, you know, for our high school uh, athletes as well. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, with respect to COVID, how it goes once once uh, football is up and running. Although I, I think all these teams have, um, at least where I am, kind of South Denver, they have been kind of continuing to work out, and it doesn't seem like the numbers have gotten too bad. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, as we look toward the the fall and the winter, and we see what fall football brings us, and we learn from our past experiences over the last six months, what do you guys see as some of the biggest challenges coming in the next um, the next you know season, the next fall season, winter season, et cetera? And along that line, what do you see as the ripple effect with these shorter seasons and condensed seasons? Obviously, overuse injuries, acute injuries, all of the injuries are uh, potentially going to be changing with regard to epidemiology due to this unusual circumstance. Um, we have, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, we have 
altered draft um, considerations for all of the pro leagues. And that has a downstream ripple effect as well. What do you guys think about that? And, and how will that change the dynamic of sports and sports medicine? Um, Emek, let's start with you on that. Well, I think the word is uh, uncertainty. And that's been the buzzword for six months. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty as to, you know, what's next. And it's hard to plan because we don't know what is going on, you know, next week or the week after or the month after, right? So the uncertainty of it all makes it hard to plan. It makes it hard to get a regular rhythm of, of training, of conditioning, of the normal things that you would do. I mean, for, for instance, for the NHL, we just had our draft this week, right? Normally, after the draft, we bring the kids in and we have a little bit of a training camp and, and we bring some of the, older, the other players that have been, you know, drafted before and they have a kind of a young players, uh, uh, you know, several days of, of training and, and they even scrimmage a little bit. Well, we're not doing that um, this year. And so uh, not like it, it, it is normally. And so the things have certainly been off in timing and, and that makes it hard for all the people that plan the administration, the coaches and the players. And the same thing will happen with these seasons. Um, if you're starting a little bit later, you know, for hockey, which is going to be later, you know, normally their training camp would start at uh, in early September. Well, their training camp may not even start till uh, January this year. And so what does that do to the whole rhythm and cycle of everything? And then again, you know, what's it going to look like after that? Uh, and then getting the groups of people to train together is the other thing, you know, it's, it's limited. So you, you can't get, you know, 20 or 30 guys at a time to, to, to train, to lift, to all that. Now, of course, practicing you can, um, but, but you can't do the training and conditioning that you normally would. And so I, I definitely think that this cycle, we're going to, it's still going to take a, it's not going to be normal next fall. Um, and uh, it's going to take another, at least another year through this. So maybe by 2022, we will see a more normal fall. But uh, I don't even think next year will be. Yeah, I think baseball, you know, barring something bad happening in these next couple of weeks, they obviously uh, will make it through a season. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, four months from now is, is spring training. And we have, you know, seven minor league teams and a major league team at our facility. So you're talking over 200 athletes. Um, it, it, right now, it just doesn't even seem possible. Uh, and as you all may be aware, also, there, all the entire minor league baseball season was canceled, which is pretty significant because baseball is a a very different sport. Um, you know, NFL and NBA guys get drafted and immediately uh, go play professionally uh, on, on, on at the highest level. But in baseball, typically you get drafted and then spend three or four years uh, in the minor leagues before you would make it to the major leagues. And those those developmental years are very important. And so there's a whole group of guys that basically got no development this season. I mean, potentially that could occur again next year, um, which ends up affecting them, uh, you know, later in their careers when they when they typically do end up um, making, uh, you know, reasonable 
uh, money. And then as we talked earlier, the whole spill down effect into, into college and into, uh, into high school. But I, I agree with Eric. I, I don't know when we're going to see normal and there's certainly a lot of um, uncertainty. Well, Drs. McCarty and Noonan, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Your experience and expertise with taking care of all athletes, and in particular professional athletes, is incredible. And certainly, I think uncertainty and unknowns are the two buzzwords we can all take away. Um, but your your expertise with taking care of these athletes and knowing about these issues and helping guide our listeners for all of our listeners who take care of professional, collegiate, high school athletes, as well as you know weekend warrior athletes, I think this information will be really helpful. And um, again, we want to thank you for taking the time with us tonight to, to chat. And um, with that, um, that's really all the time we have for this podcast. But again, we want to thank you all very much. And for all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank. We'll see you next time. Hey, well, thanks, Rachel and Pete. You know, this I love listening to you guys. You do a great job with this podcast. And so keep up the good work. Really enjoy it and uh, love uh, love what you're doing. Yeah, again, yeah, Rachel, Pete, thanks very much. Really uh, appreciate what you're doing. And uh, like Eric, I enjoy it as well. All right, guys. Thank you so much.